0: I went to grad school for seven years, and here I am in L.A. six months later, a broke waiter. This is my nightmare. This is what I was afraid of. That was a scary time, you know, when your bank account's in the red, and it looks like Hollywood Armageddon. Yeah, it sucked.
1: Hello, and welcome to How to Fail Successfully, the podcast that teaches the steps to success through the stories of failures. I'm so happy that you can join me as I interview some of my favorite people and encourage them to share their story with you. I'm Matthew Carrier, and this is How to Fail Successful. Welcome back. This is episode number 14. Today's guest is Robbie Damond. Robbie is a voiceover actor who has done numerous video games, numerous Nickelodeon shows, and he is actually the voice, the most current voice of Spider-Man in the Marvel comic animated series. He's kind of a big deal, and I was super excited to get him on this podcast. Uh, I didn't know him before this conversation, but it only took about five minutes into it before I realized this was going to be a great talk. As we know by now, the road to success is not always pretty. There's a lot of bumps and bruises along the way, and I asked Robbie to share that story with us. Uh, At the end of the conversation, I actually asked him to do some of his most famous voices, uh, which I kind of geeked out about because it's a cool thing that I've never had a conversation with somebody who does voiceover acting, and so he does that towards the end. We also discuss some of the acting methods that he does as well. So if you're an actor and you're listening to this, you might learn a little something throughout this conversation. Or if you're like me, you just need a story that's gonna help encourage you, let you know that you're not alone. This is the one here for you. This is my interview with Robbie Damon. All right, Robbie, thanks for joining me today.
0: I'm glad to be here. Yeah. Well, there. Well, I'm I'm you're there. I'm here. It's fine. (laughs) Well, I don't know much about your world,
1: so I'm really excited about picking your brain a little bit. Why don't you just tell us, like, what is your job? What do you do? (laughs)
0: Uh, You know, I... Well, right now I'm I'm locked in a in a padded room talking to you, and my normal day job isn't that different. <laughs> uh, sometimes I'm by myself, sometimes there are other uh, you know, mentally unstable people in there with me. Uh, but basically, I am a full time voiceover artist in Los Angeles, and uh, obviously that means I I do voices for you know commercials you hear on television, radio. Audiobooks, cartoons video games anime basically there's a disembodied voice uh it, there's a it could be me so that's what i do for a full for a full-time job and then uh some of the roles you know we, we do hundreds of projects but some of the roles that uh right now i'm most well known for is i'm currently the voice of spider-man for the marvel animated universe and yes. video games and uh, yeah i also play sailor moon or uh, tuxedo mask and sailor moon and uh A bunch of other stuff that that your 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 nerd listeners will probably know
1: including a role on Final Fantasy right
0: oh yeah Final Fantasy 15 I play uh Prompto one of the four main guys one of the most recent ones that one's been uh very popular it's a it was a great game I really enjoyed working on it awesome well we'll get into that a little bit more
1: later what I'd like for you to do though is can you just share your story with us um what got you to where you are today
0: Sure. Sure. Uh, well, I come from a small town, little town in the Midwest, uh, you know, a couple thousand people. And, uh, my dad split when I was little. So it was me and my single mom. And then, uh, and then she got remarried when I was in uh, like, say she started redating when I was like maybe 10 or so. And she was just such an incredibly supportive mom. And, at, at some point I developed an interest in music and acting in the arts, and it's not surprising with my family. My grandfather's a musici- musician, and my mother was as well. And. You know, we have a talent on that side of the family. So I started doing plays when I was really young, like uh, 11, 12, like professional plays. And then uh, it just stuck. I had a normal childhood, hunting, fishing, all that stuff and sports. But uh, but the acting thing never really left me. So I did it through, all through high school and, uh, and did professional theater. I just started doing summer stock when I was 14. Went to college for it. Uh, and in the summers, again, I would always go and do summer stock, uh, like rotating rep and other stuff like that. And, uh, and then I also went to grad school and went ahead and got my master's degree. And that was in 2007. And, uh, I moved out to Los Angeles and, uh, sort of put my nose to the grindstone and tried my hand at, uh, film and television and, and theater and all that stuff and had moderate success, you know, enough to pay the bills, but not enough to live the lifestyle I wanted. And then, uh, and then I realized, well, how can I marry my love of sort of nerd culture and, uh, and my voice training and, and expand sort of my repertoire for the type of characters that I perform. And that's how I found my way into voiceover. And about, uh, I'd say, eight years ago, I, I decided to sort of drop everything else and really just put my head down and work just on voiceover. And, uh, and you know, you, you get out what you put into it, and and uh, that's what I do full-time now. Now, why did you get into acting? Like, what as a kid
1: made you want to be an
0: actor? Hmm... Yeah, I don't know. Maybe it's because I lived in a small rural town with no neighborhood kids. I had to entertain myself somehow. Uh, I don't know. It's hard to say. I always had an expressive side, and um, you know, I still do music and stuff like that. But it just—it just seemed like not only the thing that I was the best at, but also that I uh, thought I was always a practical little kid. I—I—I I, I thought I had the best chance of making it in a career. And I know that sounds crazy because there's so few people who do it. But I would say compared to being like. A rock star, uh, I think, uh, an, an act, a working actor, was a, a much more reasonable goal. So even as a kid, you know, when I was deciding in, on, on which college to go to, I thought, well, yeah, I could go to music school, or I could do this or that, but I want to do the thing that I like, and I got the best shot at maybe making it. So,
1: and, and why is that? Like, why would you have a better chance as an actor than as a musician?
0: I don't know. I don't know. Maybe that's. I don't know if that's It's definitely not right. It's definitely my subjective sort of point of view. But it just feels like uh, people forget that there are working actors out there. In other words, you know, not these people that get millions of dollars for a movie, but people that people that go in and and work every day and make the things that you watch. And I I knew that to be true. And uh, I also knew that theater was a kind of a grind like that as well. So I didn't mind that. Uh, The idea of, you know, not necessarily being super rich, but making a good living and doing what you love every day that, that kind of got me going. And I just, I don't know, maybe it's because my, my, my parents and grandparents were, uh, were musicians and I, I knew what that life was like, uh, and how hard that can be. Uh, I don't know. I was, it was just never the, never the path for me, I guess. What did your mom think about her son wanting to be an actor? <laughs> That's a good question. Uh, you should ask her. She's a, she's a PhD. <laughs> she's a philosophy professor. I'm sure she'd have some ideas about it. Um, I don't know. She was always supportive, her and my dad. And they knew I had other pursuits. They knew I, you know, I worked for their construction company when I was younger. And, you know, I was, I, I had really good marks in school. And I mean, not to be whatever, but I probably could have done some other things. But once I, I think they, at a certain age, they realized this was it for me. And once they realized it, they just did everything to facilitate my success. So, so I'm eternally grateful for them. They, they were always they made me they made they made sure I knew there were other options out there, but they always supported uh, my choices. And uh, yeah. Can you clarify something for me? You said your sure. dad. Uh, now, you said, the... oh, my stepfather. Oh, okay. Yeah, my step, gotcha. my stepfather. But I don't call him that. Uh, yeah. You know, he's, been, he's been in my life since I was 10 and he adopted me officially when I was uh, 13. And, you know, he's the most manly man, you know, I mean, he owned, owned a construction company and was VP of this other construction company. He's like a six time Iron Man, like super athlete, just sort of alpha male kind of guy. And to walk into the situation and, you know, uh, adopt this, uh, weird little theater kid. Uh, <laughs> I, you know, I don't know. Kudos to him, but I, I couldn't <laughs> ask for a better, uh, I couldn't ask for a better male role model uh, to come into my life at, at that time when I probably really needed it. So uh, yeah, my my dad's awesome, and well, he beat cancer this year. Oh, that's awesome. His bu- yeah, right. Yeah. Talk about a talk about a superhero. That's awesome. Yeah,
1: that's great. So when you're in high school, you're mm. acting. Yeah. Then you went to college for acting. Hmm. And grad school. And everything was smooth sailing, right? <laughs> No problems in school. Everything worked out. I great. don't think I'd
0: be on this uh, <laughs> this this blog here if if it was right. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Tell me about it. Well, uh, I first started to encounter problems. I would say <sighs> I always associated with adults when I was a kid, and, and because you know I had friends my own age, but. I think that was sort of the problem leading into high school and college. I had a really supportive, uh, uh, theater teacher who, who made me, I was president of the Thespian club and all of that stuff, but I couldn't always do the plays cause I was doing professional plays in college plays, And I started to notice that not, not resentment, but like I started knowing that performing above my expected level might lead to problems in the future that was my first taste Mm. of it even though i had a very very supportive theater teacher miss miss sulzner i i felt guilt for the things that i was doing that i wasn't supposed to be you know what i mean like when you have to tell the school you have to explain to the school why you're not participating in the the club that you're president of and that's because you're working uh i knew things so when i got to college i wasn't surprised that it, it that that started to become a problem. Uh, I went to a, a theater conservatory, we're talking like, a, I think it was like a 30, at the time, this is 2000, it was like 35 grand a, a year or something, which doesn't seem like a lot now, but oh, back yeah. then, that, yeah. that was a, a lot of money for a theater arts, for a BFA program, <laughs> yeah. a, a, a supposedly terminal degree. But I got academic scholarships and a performance scholarships, and my, my parents covered the rest and some Pell Grants here and there. And I got there, and it just sucked. Uh, I, I hated it. Uh, and it was my dream school. It was a, a school called Webster University. And in the Midwest, they, uh, compared to Cincinnati Conservatory of the Arts, they were the place to go if we were going to stay in the Midwest. You know, I auditioned at some other schools and got into a bunch of other schools, but none of them were a focused conservatory, and none of them gave me as much money. And I just thought it You know, They held the annual Midwest Theater auditions there. I mean, I, I just thought this was my dream school. This was the place to be. Outside of something, some pipe dream like Juilliard or something like that, uh, this is where I wanted to go. And I immediately started butting heads with the faculty because they were teaching this sort of ooey-gooey, wound-picking sort of acting technique that everybody else just bought into hook, line, and sinker like an 18-year-old does. And not to say I was more experienced than my peers, but I was more experienced than my peers, and I was looking for uh, a practical acting technique that I could take out into the world and use. And I just felt like I I, I just could not buy into it. Uh, you know that that song from Chorus Line. It's like, uh, uh what is it? And the, it asked me to ice and I melt, and I felt nothing. You know how she she's talking about feeling nothing from these acting classes, and that was exactly my experience of it. And so that's what i started to experience and i'm very clear it was it was uh, prevalent in my work there so um i the sort of feelings toward my faculty were reciprocated so you know first year went through and then this program had a mandatory cuts program so um they started weeding people out of the program and by the end of sophomore year about half the people uh, who were who would remain uh, were, were sort of selected. So you had to go through juries and, and all of this stuff, which is ridiculous in retrospect, considering it's this conservatory in the middle of the Midwest that like, now that I'm in LA and New York and wherever, and I mention it, they go where, but to, to me as an 18 year old, it was the end all be all Mm. Uh, college for me, you know, and this story does have a conclusion, but you were asking you know when did i first start feeling that and it was definitely in college you know i walk in with this resume of you know 25 30 professional plays and i didn't get cast once my freshman year in anything and that was frustrating because i knew it was because of my attitude and not as so much as my skill because my skill was getting me things in other places but my my attitude and and place In the politics of this school were really sabotaging me and I was sabotaging myself so you know it it was one of those sort of situations Mm. and it was a failure yeah (laughs) not not getting cast in anything your freshman year and feeling like you're gonna walk into a school as like a rock star uh, is is definitely a failure so I guess if I can just wrap this up basically uh my I got put on academic a bunch of my friends got the boot, uh, including my roommate, uh, by by halfway through sophomore year. And then they they finally did it. They finally put me on academic probation uh, uh, and my and, and my girlfriend, too. And it was weird. You know, there were other there were other folks, but like I, I, and I would never say this ever, but like they were definitely weeding out a certain kind of person. Uh it was definitely like the strongest willed sort of like bigger personality type people that I thought were more talented than some of the people they were keeping. And uh and I found myself on that list on academic probation, but I went ahead and I was like, you know what, I'm not gonna get kicked out of this school no matter what. But as soon as I got put on probation, uh that first the end of that first semester, I immediately started putting in applications for other schools and auditioning across the country in secret. <laughs> None of the faculty knew that I was auditioning at like, uh, where I ended up going to school. UNLV, I'd auditioned at U- U- UCLA, USC, AU, NYU, Juilliard, DePaul, uh, a bunch of schools, many of which I-, I got into, but, uh, but they didn't know I was doing that on the slide. But I also am so stubborn. I didn't want them to win. So I didn't want to get kicked out. So I did everything they they told me to do. And the funny part was their justification for putting me on uh, probation was that I had failed voice and speech, which in, <laughs> which in, which in retrospect is hilarious. But uh, at the time I didn't think it was. So long story short, I did everything they said. I went into my juries and, and, and where afterwards and they told me that, um, hey, you know what? We decided to take you off of probation. You're welcome to stay. But at that point, I was so disappointed in the school. I yeah. said, you know what? I've decided I'm going to go somewhere else. And here's the messed up part about all of it. I recently, and I know, I'll never look back, recently had lunch in New York with some friends of mine who, who actually finished that program. It turns out the faculty told everyone that I was cut, which just confirms that that place was definitely not the school for me. Because I think that's that's academically, like, uh, amoral, if you ask me, to lie about someone's experience. I, I just I, I really found that disturbing, that the faculty would would lie about my status there to people who would go on to be professionals. Yeah. yeah, it was very odd. It was a really weird experience. But that was my first real taste of failure, my first two years of college. And it was really disheartening because that's a, a really formative time in your life.
1: And, and what did you take away from that experience?
0: Uh, I don't know. Uh. Sort of uh I do know. I was fueled by spite from that for a long time. <laughs> yeah. And I think I think a little bit of I think a little bit of spite, I think a just a you know, you can't let it fuel you completely, but just a little bit of wanting to uh, wanting to prove someone wrong in, in life, I really don't think there's anything wrong with that. There's a, peop- there's a lot of people a lot of people that they'll tell you, "Oh, yeah, you want to just let it all go and be cool with it, man." Not really. Like if someone does you wrong and <laughs> you feel like you have got your stuff together, mm-hmm. you go out there and you prove them wrong. And uh, every you know I still make jokes with my mom about that jerkwad teacher who failed me in voice and speech. And it's great. Every time I you know, and we laugh about it because and it's not hateful. It's just fun. Because I don't know. I, I just think there's a, a little bit to take away from that. Also, years later I would be on the other end of, of those kind of selection uh committees as a graduate student. And uh I took away with how not to handle that situation, too, and how to treat other people who are coming up and need guidance and maybe don't need to move forward or or whatever. Let them know that that's just my opinion, but it is my opinion. And that's never how it felt at that school. It felt like this is the way things are and our way is right. And even when I had to not pass students on to, say, junior year in our theater program and our the undergrads that I taught, I would say, hey, listen, you know, you really believe in this, that you got this. Retake the course and, and we'll see you in a semester and and we'll, we'll move forward. But And this is just my opinion, but it's my job to give you this opinion. Robbie, why would you have to hold somebody back?
1: Like, what about that student would not allow them to move forward?
0: Uh. W- w- Typically based on grades, which are subjective when you're when you're doing something like the arts so um, that your opinion comes into play. And it wasn't just me. It was just a, like a, a small committee that would decide who would move on because there wasn't space in those classes. And uh, we had a B.A. open enrollment program. So, so our undergrads, there was no audition process. They could just sign up to be a theater major. So we'd start the year with, you know, 120, 130 theater majors. But in, been in actuality, we'd, we'd graduate, you know, the 30, 40 of them tops. So is uh, is there a Robbie in there somewhere that you had to hold back that will go on to do something pretty special? I hope so. I absolutely hope so. Uh, I, I, I would love to be someone's anger fuel for success. Uh, absolutely. Uh, I, I, I'm, I, I think if that person were there, I I don't think I, 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 I would not allow myself to not pass on someone who, who had the ability just maybe based on other political things. No, I think that was a structure inherent in that, in that school. That didn't really necessarily have to do with ability, because a lot of the people that ended up getting getting cut went on to do great things, either in education or business or 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 performance or whatever. I mean, and of all the people I went to school with, there, you know, me and and. Uh, I can count on a single hand how many of us are still still performers. You know what I mean? And that's a mix of people who were yeah. cut and who weren't. Hmm. So I'd like, think, I'd like to think I made the right choices, but if I didn't, uh, hopefully that person went out there and, and killed it because I was angry, <laughs> or because they were angry at me.
1: <laughs> After you decided to leave Webster University,
0: you went to Vegas. I did, yeah. Why Vegas? Oh, a couple of reasons. One, they gave me the most money yeah good reason because <laughs> I got into a couple I got into a couple other schools I got into DePaul and I got into NYU uh I got into a few other schools but gosh dang they were so expensive and uh I just I don't know my, my parents were putting this thing in my head like you know don't go into debt for the rest of your life for college especially an arts degree so that the practical kid in me was coming out and then uh, also uh the girl that I was dating was from there ah. so so I thought that was an easy choice. So I'll go with her, have a little support system of her family. They gave me a great scholarship that paid for almost all of my school. And uh, they took all of my conservatory credits. And uh, and I knew that I would be able to finish in four years. So that was a big deal to me. I, I wanted to finish my undergrad in four years total. And then I have the. I thought maybe in the back of my head that they would—they were grooming me for a graduate position, and uh, that's exactly what was was happening. I was there the first semester, and they're like, "Well, part of the reason why we brought you out is that, you know, we were, we're thinking about you coming in and taking over this this teaching position and uh, and doing grad school here because they only take a, a graduate class." Of like uh ten to fifteen every three years, so it's just that's it. They only do one class per three years for their graduate program for their for their terminal MFA degree. So uh so I had I thought that 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 was also that opportunity maybe there and and that's the, how it turned out as well, well.
1: Let me ask you a question: If
0: you're wanting to be an actor, why teach? Well, be a uh, practical side because I knew how unlikely it was that this would be the outcome. <laughs> uh-huh. So, so I get that question a lot and people ask me that and they say, would well, you want those three years back knowing what you would have now? And I think my argument is, I don't know that I would have what I have now without the education and, uh, experiences I had in, in, in grad school. You know, a lot of kids move out to LA and make it when they're 18. Sure. But a lot of them don't. So, um, I just wanted, uh, uh, I had adult once even as a, as a as a 20-something. I knew that maybe I would want a, a house and a kid and a wife and something like that someday. And uh, I, I don't know. I, I don't know. I just always had – it wasn't doubt in the back of my head, but it was just practicality. There are a lot of talented people who don't ever, ever make it. So um, So that was my backup plan. And through teaching, did you learn anything about acting? Oh, absolutely. Maybe the most – uh, because I taught, uh, I taught theater labs and voice and movements and, uh, and uh, undergrad stuff. And, you know, I was directing scenes and, and when you teach something, uh, you have to have a fundamental understanding of it. I mean, in my opinion, at, at least at the college level, uh, you know, there are no, there are no answer books for trying to develop your own pedagogy to, to teach someone a technique of something that is, some would say, you know, difficult to teach. So, um, so yeah, absolutely. I learned a lot about acting through, through teaching. I learned a lot about myself and your, you students would question your direction and, and then you would question yourself. And if you're having an open discourse, uh, in college, which I, I think that's the point of it. Uh, yeah, any good teacher will, will, will learn as they go along too. I was definitely a better teacher, you know, my third year of grad school than, than my, my first. And, uh, yeah, I learned a lot myself. And what did you learn about yourself? Oh man. Uh, that's a good question. Uh, I would say that, uh, I would, I I would say that I would direct people into a, a physical form of, of acting and sort of, uh, I developed my own personal, style of how I like to get people into into a moment. And that that was how I did it. So um, even though I would be te- teaching a specific technique, uh, I would always marry it with with my personal opinions about the interpretation of that technique. So if I'm teaching like, you know, script analysis or Meisner or Laban or or lugering method or some form of of uh, uh, of method, I had my own method to the method that was going on. So uh, so I learned how I like to do stuff and it really worked out for what I ended up doing because my sort of acting method is great for making quick, big, bold, emotional uh, choices. Hmm. And I found out what I wasn't into was um, sort of wound picking, emotional recalls, th- that sort of form of, of, uh, of acting technique. C-
1: can you explain that a little bit more? Like, what do you mean by that?
0: Oh, uh, well, there are these sort of techniques that where uh, acting coaches will pride themselves on breaking someone down and getting them to a, 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 some sort of emotional state and then making them act from there. And, um, this is something that we had a few guest instructors come in at UNLV that I didn't agree with that were like from LA, like the guy, I can't remember his name, but, uh, he like coached Michael Clark Duncan in the, in the green mile. And, and you go, Oh, well that was a great performance, but I was teaching theater and I was like, yeah, but they all, you only have to do it right once. So, and, and I thought that was a little, uh, sort of emotionally sort of masturbatory kind of sort of thing. So, so I, I found out that, that wasn't the preferred technique for me for, for, for training. My goal was to train professional actors for the future. So, uh, I always come from a place of, if you, um, believe in the imaginary circumstance that's presented to you in the script, uh, and you play the actions or the choices of actions that are, that are there for you in text analysis, then you are going to come to an emotional place just by playing those actions within those circumstances. You know, you, it's impossible to do a, a physical or, or or intellectual action over and over and over again and not feel anything. And I feel that once those feelings are present after doing a, an action, then they're even more honest to the, the script. You know, you're not crying about your dead cat, you're crying about what is uh, Actually, in, in the text yeah, for you. Yeah. 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 Using your using your imagination to, to act. And uh, I, I don't I don't subscribe so much to that other school. It has it has its purposes, but they, they weren't really they're not really for me. Yeah.
1: In what year did you move to Los Angeles? Two
0: thousand seven. Yeah. Two
1: thousand seven. Uh-huh. So so by two thousand eight you were on every single TV show, is that correct? Correct.
0: Yeah. I was uh, world famous <laughs> <Okay>. and uh, <laughs> No. Welcome to Failure Stage Two <laughs> Uh, and that's not to say I didn't have a ton of failures in grad school. Of course. I mean, I, you know, I walked to the registrar's office with my resignation papers like three different times and bailed on it. You know, I mean, I don't think anybody. Let's talk about that. Why? (laughs) Uh, I don't know. I you wake up some mornings and you hate you hate it you you know there's never you never ever ever always have a good day and when you're an emotional sort of actor creature you know sometimes you get into that but oh yeah i definitely had failures i had a failed uh, I had a failed engagement like right, my first year of of graduate school so you know i mean that was you know a huge failure on my part totally because of me you go through those sort of things and They're they're always always an ebb and flowing. It's not like it's it's a it's a straight-up pathway to wherever you end up But um, yeah, definitely. All right, so you're in LA now. Okay, so I'm out of Vegas I'm in Los Angeles, and I didn't want to act anymore. I moved out here with my band and uh, (laughs) And my girlfriend and uh, moved into this house sight unseen turns out It's sort of right in the middle of like old East LA Hispanic uh, area and it's not bad because it's Hispanic It was just a bad Hispanic area, and uh, people were getting, like some kid had just, that's not funny, but like some kid had just gotten killed like right down the street from us like a month before we moved in. Like it was a hard, hard neighborhood. And then we dumped 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 all of our stuff over there, drove my girlfriend into Hollywood, and she pulled up to this big, beautiful apartment, and like, oh, she thinks this is it, and then we pull around the back, and there's just this dumpy little house sitting in the back of a parking lot. And she she immediately bursts into tears, and I'm like, well, I guess this is where you and I are living for the next year. You're over here, I'm over here. This is gonna be terrible. Yeah. So, uh, so we got moved in, and then me and my band went on tour. Yeah. Uh, and that was brutal. Yes. We were on tour. What, for What was the band's name? Uh, <laughs> No. Uh, all right. It was uh, meaning through madness. Yes. Oh yeah. It was like a new metal band, like a awesome. like a Avenged Sevenfold, "Bullets for My Valentine" sort of. Uh, you know that mid aughts new metal stuff. But you know, we played some shows. We made some money. We had a good time enough to where we all packed up out of Vegas and and moved to moved to L. A. together. Okay. So um, so we did a few shows. Went on tour. Uh, I spent all of my savings on tour because the tour blew up. I had to rent our own cars and pay for my old band's food because everybody was poor and broke, and I was the old man in the band at 25. And uh, we slept on the streets in Canada, and it was with this tour, this tour called Rock Uranok, which was basically like uh, Eastern Europe's like Rolling Stones and Aerosmith's bands touring around the country. So Sweet. we went all the way from yeah. We went all the way from the, from the West Coast up through Chicago, Canada, down through the South, and up through New York. It was like a full-on tour. But we were the American act. Mm. Our guitarist was Serbian, so he knew these guys. And he was like a, an amazing Serbian guitarist. So we would go in and either open or be like sixth or seventh in the lineup. There was maybe like nine or ten bands. And uh, we would play these awful little bars with for a hundred people but then we would go to Canada and there would be like 13,000 Eastern Europeans in the middle of a park So it was a crazy experience not really a fail but a little bit in the terms that it made me completely broke and then my entire- what, what was your role in this band? I was the lead singer. Oh, of course. <laughs> oh, yeah, of course. Of course. Wore, wore a lot of leather and necklaces. No one wants to see yes. it. No, please, God, don't Google it. Yes. I'm gonna uh, Google it. But, It'll be up on the website, okay? No! <laughs> uh, but, uh, but anyway, it was a really fun experience, but it just totally blew all my money. Uh, we played one show at uh, in, in LA, and uh, within like four months, uh, the whole band went back home.
1: Okay, so we're at that halfway mark here. As we continue on with Robbie's story, he lets us know how he went from uh, just that that lowest moment of being completely broke. Well, actually, I'll let him describe it.
0: And I was broke. I was dead broke. That's when the first two years in L.A. started, and it was rough.
1: If you're enjoying this podcast, I would ask that you would subscribe. Uh, You can also now find me on Twitter and Facebook uh, at Successfully. How to fail successfully, but it's at HTF successfully. I'll start posting some behind the scenes and uh, some extra quotes from the uh, the episode. So let's get back to the second half of my conversation with Robbie. Enjoy. You know, I I hear this story so much about
0: people that go out to LA. It just seems to be that that's the thing about LA. I mean, you go broke. Yeah, it's a tough city and it's expensive. And, you know, because of touring from theater and and going to colleges and just sort of being a traveling person, I uh, I was like, ah, oh, I can handle any city. I know L.A. And I'm like, oh, man, this city is savage. Everybody's out for every, you know, bartender, waiter job, you know. But thankfully, my girlfriend got me a job at, at a production company, Coyote Studios. So I had something somewhat steady. Uh, oh, but before that, I booked my first pilot. Now you said, oh, you were booking everything when you first got there. Actually, my first two weeks after my band left, when I said, okay, I'm gonna go, I'm gonna go back to acting. Two weeks after that, I booked a pilot on Warner Brothers for a, for a cartoon, like a big budget whatever pilot. Nothing ever came of it, but I was like, oh, I can do this, mm. you know, sweet, I, I can do voiceover. And uh, that didn't go anywhere. And then shortly after that, the writer's strike hit. And oh, in, yeah. in two thousand, late two thousand seven, two thousand eight, something like that, it just crushed Hollywood. It, I mean, and people talk about it, and it was like it really did. It shut everything down. So this company that I worked for uh, fired eighty percent of their workforce over the course of six months. And thankfully I made it to the very end until my position was, uh, done by my boss. Wow. Cause you know, basically my bosses were doing all of the warehouse work. We were a rental company that rented out equipment to, uh, to big movie sets and commercials and stuff. So anyway, yeah, that was tough. So all of a sudden I found myself without a job and, uh, waiting tables. So, you know, boom, in comes my, uh, my fear of cliche You know, like, oh, God, I went to grad school for seven years and here I am in L.A. six months later, broke a broke waiter at a at a crappy Italian restaurant downtown. I was like, this is this is my nightmare. This is what I was afraid of. So, you know, it it, it was uh, I I was scary. That was a scary time. You know, you when your bank accounts in the red and, you know, uh, it looks like Hollywood Armageddon. Yeah, it sucked. Definitely sucked. So what happens next? (laughs) <laughs> well, uh, the place I was working for was so shady. They finally, they finally closed and I was without a job at all. Jobless, jobless. Thankfully I had, uh, I had, uh, a little bit saved and, uh, I went on unemployment mm. for probably an ice I don't know. I had this weird like Republican grandpa and I was like, I'm never going to take any social services. And then I was like, oh, my God, I need this three hundred sixty dollars a week. I need, I need it. And I've been working since I was 15 and paying into it. So, you know, I, I could not ask my parents for money. They would have given it to me, but I was just I was 25 and on my own and I just couldn't do it. And I was in a state of rested development because, you know, I'd never been out of school. You know, so I didn't know how to live uh, outside of a support system of a school. So, yeah, it was it was pretty savage. So I started applying for work and uh, <laughs> I think my, I couldn't get a single job anywhere because the whole city was shut down and I hadn't had any service experience since this crappy job. And uh, you would go to bars like to try to get a bartender job or something like that in L.A. and it's, there are literally lines of people around the corner. 'Cause this is right after the the recession. You know what I mean? Yeah. So yeah, so there were no jobs. So I couldn't get a job anywhere. And one of my this is one of my I was finally like, okay, graduate degree, don't care. I'm gonna go get a job as a pizza delivery guy. I just need cash. Anything, anything, anything. So I went and interviewed at this nice pizza place, whatever. He's like, oh yeah, you pretty much got the job. I just got to run your stuff and make sure that – I was like, okay, whew, I got something to do at night. I can do my pursuits during the day. And I never got a call. And I was like, what? How did I not get the pizza delivery guy job? I can't even get the pizza job. And then, and then I, three days later, I get this notice in the mail. I had just moved out of the crappy place and into a new place. My mail had been missing and not getting to me. Turns out uh, I had been in a wreck that wasn't my fault when I first moved to L.A. And I didn't know in Los Angeles that you had to file a police report when you get into an accident. And because they stayed and I left because I got rear-ended and my car was okay and theirs was totaled, uh, they filed a police report with the cop after I left. I never got the notice. I never got the notice and I never filed up with it. And my license was suspended Literally the day before I interviewed at the pizza place. Oh my goodness. So this guy this guy went to look me up and he's like, oh, this friggin' flick. He's his license suspended. So here I am, you know, license suspended, no job. My girlfriend and I had just my girl longtime girlfriend and I had just broken up. And um uh I was scouring for work. I finally went on like some kind of job finding site. And saw an opening for uh, a, a teacher position at the New York Film Academy, and uh, and I and once I saw that and applied, I started going. All right, let's get your CV together. So my mom helped me put my CV together, <laughs> and I started blasting out my uh, my my resume and my CV to uh, uh, Santa Monica College and Pepperdine and anything in the Los Angeles uh, area. Yeah, I was I was to the point where I was like, all right, it's time to start. Enact the fallback plan. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. 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 I was, I was legit about it.
1: How many years did it take you to, from being in Los Angeles to getting your first big break in voiceover work?
0: 2008, 2009. Uh, two years, I would, say. well, not first break. Um, big you break. know, yeah. Uh, I would say two years in 2009. Uh, via an online casting site, I got cast in a Peruvian animated film to redub it, and uh, I flew down to Peru for about a month. Uh, they paid me a couple thousand dollars and all my expenses, and then uh, flew back up. Uh, had some issues, flew back down and redid it with a new cast, and I helped direct, and uh, and then came back up. The movie released in 2009. And I used that movie to shop for uh, a manager Okay. and uh, who I knew could find me a good agent because I had been agent bouncing for about two years and uh, and then um, I got this manager and he's like, I can walk you into Vox, which uh, is one of the the top uh, of, I'd say top five CEO agencies in the city. And uh, he's like, I'll walk you in, Tom will probably take you. I can get you an interview at least. So he did and he 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 got me in and I started working with them in uh in 2010 I think officially finally started working with them in 2010 the movie came out in 2009 and uh and that was that was a big turning point because uh I finally got a legit 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 agent and once you get one of those kind of agents, and you realize the caliber of projects that you are just given access to audition for, uh, that's when my career really started to uh, to move. Was in 2010, and I felt I felt really good about it, and um, I sort of left all my other poopy agents behind. And, uh, you know, in those earlier two years, I had done a few on-camera things like, you know, a few commercials, some TV, a couple of indie movies, you know, enough to help pay the bills, but not really enough to, to have a full-time lifestyle. And that was while I was struggling with, you know, Pizza Boy and teaching at NYFA and all those other places.
1: Your resume is about 12 pages long. <laughs> I mean, I can't get yeah. through the whole thing. <laughs> First off. How do you do so much? How can you get so much done? Is there like, is it different as a voiceover actor
0: than an on-screen actor? Yeah, I mean, yes. You know, we we, we punish ourselves. <laughs> um, you know, the pay is good. Our pay is pretty much the same as, as far as day rates go for the on-camera people. But our sessions are only four hours long. So, uh, you know, the typical day is nine to one, lunch break two to six. But that's if you're killing it. You know, when I when I first started in my career, if I had booked, you know, two or three things a week, I was walking on cloud nine. And then uh, until I started doing my first big show with Nickelodeon, my uh, my partner, Eric Bauza, in that show said, uh, you know, I was all excited because I had work every day that week. And he goes, oh, yeah, work every day. Good for you. Good for you. He's <laughs> like you, you fill out your week. And I was like, what? He's like, Did you fill out your week. And I was like, well, no, I have something to do every day. He's like, oh OK, well, you're doing good. But just, uh, you know, talk to me when you're when you're working uh, a double every day. And, and I was like, ah, oh, oh yeah, this is what some of these people do. They were, they could potentially work 10, 10, jobs a week if they wanted to. So, uh, so, so we have, we have the opportunity to work on a lot of projects, but it's a lot of work cause you do a show and you know, it could be 26, 56 episodes. Like, you know, it, it all depends.
1: Yeah. But I yeah, a, I got a question Go about the process. Sure. For these guys that are going five days a week. Two sessions a day, so it's eight hours a day just talking nonstop, reading a script, go, 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 go. Sure. How do they not lose their voice? Like
0: how do they keep going and
1: not have any effect on their voice?
0: Uh well, we do. Sometimes. Yeah, absolutely. It's uh, you know, the best analogy is is sort of a professional athlete. Like, you know, even if we're you know, if we play eighty percent of the game, we're doing pretty darn good. You know, uh, we don't have game breaking injuries all that often, but there are a lot of times where we got to ice our knee, you know what I mean? So you you take a break. Um, The the real key to it is staying healthy uh, and having good vocal technique. And uh, trying to structure your week in a in a good way. Like I I do my best to to try not to do like a you know a Call of Duty session before I have to go in and like play a, a, a little ten year old kid on a on a cartoon or something. You know. Gotcha. So you know you're safe. You keep yourself healthy. But oh, well, it's de- that's definitely the biggest challenge is, is is staying in in good voice. So um yeah, it, and that's that's part of the job.
1: And how do you prepare for a new show? Like yeah. I know that. An actor will get a script. Oh, they yeah. can look over it. They understand it. They can get into the character. But as a voiceover actor, if you're doing so much, if you're having to switch gears so often, how do you get into that character?
0: Not always. Not always do we have that much chance to – like uh, if it's anime, sometimes I'll get booked on an anime and not even know what it is when I walk in the door. We'll do like a rundown, find the voice – and, uh, and make choices right off the bat. Um, it goes back to sort of why I said the acting technique that, that I develop and uh, not that I developed, but I, that I developed for myself and use is really good because you have to have monster cold reading skills. Like uh, it's one of the first things. You gotta be able to look at a piece of text and make a, a choice immediately. And, uh, and have it be good because you're competing against some other people who do that. So, uh, yeah, it's, it's tough. Uh, but for preparing for like a new show, like a Western animated show or a video game or something, I'll spend some time with the script. I'll get those ahead of time. I'll make a few choices off the bat, but I keep myself somewhat pliable in case they want to hear something different. Cause a lot of the times you'll go in for these animated sessions and, You'll end up doing, you know, one character, then two side characters, and you might change the voice uh, in the in the first session. You might find it with the director, or you might do an audition and then go in. And they'll be like, "Hey, we like what you did, but can you just you, can you slow it down and lower the pitch? But let's 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 tune in on hone in on this." And uh, and then um, so you you have to be very malleable in that kind of way. Well, you are Mr. Peter Parker. That's true. You're you're Mr. Spider Man. That's true.
1: <laughs> yes i mean that had to have been like exciting when you got that call like tell me about
0: it yeah it's my favorite superhero so uh, yeah i was super excited i uh, i got a last minute call one day from my agent and they're like hey can you be to studio xyz at uh, 5:30?" and i was like yeah what is it And they're like it's a new marvel thing it's a secret thing and i was like okay yeah i'll be there and uh i happened i had the- i was wrapped at four that day so i went in and and uh, walked in the room and saw some familiar faces and some unfamiliar faces and I was like, okay, well this is Marvel people. And I got the script and it was all code named. Like it was like code Dragonfly or something like that. <laughs> and, uh, and all the characters' names were changed and there was nothing referring to Spider-Man. And, and they tricked me, I didn't get it. I, I was like, what is this IP, Dragonfly? She's like a exploitation like a, a era Marvel superhero. Like what is this, that's not what I'm reading for. So I did not put it together. And then, um, and then, uh, I was like, okay. So I went in and I got the vibe of it and did a, uh, did my audition and did a couple of retakes with some direction. And that was that, and, you know, you forgot, you forget about it. And then two weeks later, my agent called and he's like, Hey, remember that Marvel thing? I was like, yeah, yeah. He's like, Oh, you're, uh, that was Spider-Man and you're Spider-Man. Uh, and I was like, <laughs> wh- What? Uh, so I was super stoked about it, but, uh, I still am. It's a, it's a great job, but we're still, still working on it. And, uh, that was, I'd say two and a half years ago, something like that. And, uh, and then, and then, um, it was funny cause we did Comic-Con last year and, uh, Court Lane, one of the VPs of development was like, you know, Robbie was the great right choice for the show. Uh, but what he doesn't know is that when he auditioned for ultimate Spider-Man, like six or seven years ago, he was uh, uh, second in line, he's second place. Uh, and then we used Drake Bell for that show, and that was the right choice for that show, but this was Robbie's time and, and it was right for that show. So, so those kind of things come back, even if you don't realize it. So, and did you know,
1: did you know that you were that close to missing out on Spider-Man? Sure.
0: Yeah. I mean, I was in the final rounds of callbacks, so I knew if it wasn't me, it was me or, you know, four or five other guys. But in the end, at the level that sort of I'm working at right now, I feel like if I lose a job, like or not lose a job, there's no, you don't ever have it. But I'm, what I'm saying is if I, I do an audition, I feel like it's really good for me. Uh, I can probably guess the 10 other guys that it's going to be if it's not me. Uh, It's a very small community in that way. And an even smaller community when you start talking about who does what things that are in their wheelhouse, you know?
1: Well, if you could share, Mm
0: -hmm. if you could give me
1: some voices, okay. I want to hear like some wide ranging voices. Like what are your two Uh, favorite voices that you've done? You know, one side or the other.
0: Oh, there are, (laughs) I guess there are a bunch of them. Uh, uh, sort of, um, Pete is Pete is one of my younger characters, and I have a younger voice. So when I do Peter Parker, he's sort of he lives up here. He's kind of high and up, and he's a little bit nerdy. So it's it's just a variation of my voice. And then I'll do other characters that are much lower in my voice and sort of uh, they might have like an evil sound or like uh, I'm trying to think of something like something monstery. I, I i don't know i do i do a bunch of characters it's hard for me to say so yeah i don't know besides peter parker what's the favorite what's your favorite voice that you've done my favorites that's like she's in between your children uh <laughs> that's uh, true i'm sorry <laughs> i did this uh, i do this reviled uh show that that the internet hates that i love that was my first big show on nickelodeon called breadwinners and uh it was like this sugar cereal character and uh he was just always hyped all the time, and his voice is way up here. He's like, "What's up, Deucer? And he was just sort of like, like a sugar cereal, like a cartoon character on crack. And he sang all the time. His name was Sway Sway, and he was a duck who delivered bread in a rocket van, and uh, and you know, it was a little show show for you know seven seven to ten year old boys, all about butts and fart jokes. And I just I loved it. It was eighty episodes of just pure joy for me for three years. And, um, you know, you get to do days like that and then you get to do other days where you're like, you you know, uh, if you're watching TV right now or watch TV through all the holidays, there's like a K jewelry commercial. It's like interwoven, (laughs) you know, it's like, uh, you know, give her the gift of diamonds, you know? And so every day is a little bit, every day is a little bit different, you know? So, um, that's the fun part about our job is you get to walk in and do no, no two days are ever the same. Yeah.
1: All right, Robbie, I've got a couple questions for you before you go. Okay. With yeah. this podcast being
0: focused on failure
1: and success, okay, I'd love for you to give me your definition of failure.
0: Ooh, a definition of failure. Uh, I would say failure is not achieving what you set out for in the moments, but learning a lesson for the future. That would be my definition of failure. And then what is success? That's harder than I thought. Success is. Success is just a personal feeling. It can't be defined in money or accolades or credits. Success uh, comes from a sense of contentment that you have. Gotten something that you have set out to achieve. I think so. And are you successful? (sighs) Yes. And here's why. Because I made a bargain with myself in 2004 uh, when I decided whether or not to go to grad school, since we've talked about that quite a bit. Uh, I thought to myself, seven years in school. That's a big chunk of my life. That's a tenth of my life if I live, you know, a decent life. And, uh what do I need to make of that to make this choice to stay in school total for seven years? And I made myself a bargain. I said, if I'm going to go to grad school for seven, you know, if I'm going to spend seven years in college, when I get out into the professional world, I am going to spend exactly seven years Hmm. doggedly pursuing my passion. Yeah. Yeah. That that's it. So for me, I was 25. That means by the time I was 32, uh, and I set little goals of what that meant to have achieved that goal. Uh, I would not have be working another kind of job. Uh, I would only be a full-time actor. And uh, I would be living a comfortable lifestyle. And I would, do, I would be doing so without uh, compromising my creative intent. Mm. And, uh, and that happened for me a little early. It happened for me at about uh, 30, but uh, where I felt really comfortable with it and that was a moment where i was like okay this is a success i did it but i also had the opposite end of that goal which was if i didn't achieve that i was out i was done that's all the amount of time i could put into this the in this life and then i would st- start to look at my start to look at my backup plan or teaching or, or something completely different uh because you know at 32 you know that's about the, you're you're hitting the point where it's like uh, how many times can I reinvent myself by the time I get to a certain age. So um so th- that was a deal I made for myself and I'm grateful every day that I was able to to come come b- make good on that bargain with me.
1: What's the next step for you? What's your next goal?
0: Oh, hard to say. I I'm really enjoying what I'm doing but um professionally uh my end game would be uh to to write and produce and have my own show with either just myself or or my my writing group that I work with uh personally uh I got engaged uh, this past summer Congratulations. and uh thank you and on that same trip I uh I I accidentally made a baby too so that was a <laughs> big trip so uh I've, I've got a baby on the way and and a, and a wife to be had in the, in the coming year and and um that really made me really reevaluate what a true success in life is. And, um, for, the, for the, for the, most of my life, it's been about me and uh, about my pursuits, uh, professionally and creativity, create uh, creatively. And, um, I would say that in the coming years, my big goal is going to be having a better work life balance and being better to myself and the people that I, I love and, um, not making, Not making work the end-all be-all. Wow. Yeah.
1: Man, I so appreciate you coming on this podcast today. Um, I learned a ton. Congratulations on all of your success. Thanks. I know that I will now be following your career much closer (laughs) so that I don't have to weave through the 12 pages of, of resume. I can just start right now. So congratulations on everything. You
0: too, brother. Thanks a ton for having me.
1: What a cool guy hope that you enjoyed that conversation uh look him up robbie damon follow his career he's gonna have keep having continual successes uh and that's that's what makes me happy you know the whole point of this is to show that you know we we are all striving to be successful but it's not easy and it doesn't look pretty Uh, but if you keep going at it eventually you will find that success in something that you are passionate about I'm so excited for next week's episode when I sit down with Divine Evans. Divine is a producer, writer, song arranger for the greats. I mean, anybody from Mary J. Bly, Chainsmokers, Tim McGraw and Faith Hill, uh, Justin Timberlake. In fact, he's actually currently working on Justin Timberlake's halftime show at the Super Bowl. Uh, And I got an opportunity to sit down with him. Here's a clip from next week's episode. At the time, she had unfortunately became the victim of rape and sexual assault in, uh, in a studio environment. So me dealing with that, I, I decided to take my wife's advice and I decided to take my natural approach to life. And I decided to let my pain from that experience become art because it, it's what helps me cope with life. You know, whenever life gets hard and things get, you know, overwhelming. You know, the the creative side of me is what gets me through that. And I wanted to do something for her to show her that she was not alone. I wanted to do something to her to show her that there is life after this experience. And I wanted her to feel love. And that's what inspired uh, the sheet Music, The Diary of a Songwriter project. All right. Hear the rest of that story and many more next week. We'll see you then.